I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by The Mosaic Company. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sestera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SesteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. In 1976, Roy Applequist founded Great Plains Manufacturing and released his first 30-foot folding grain drill. A few years later, the company saw the need for equipment designed specifically for the no-till industry and built its first no-till drill prototypes in 1981. Great Plains continues to be a leader in the industry even after its 2016 sale to Kubota. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter reminisces with Roy about how he got involved with building no-till equipment. Tune in as they discuss how Roy's background making bearings led to the first Great Plains folding grain drill, how a product flaw became a customer relations success, why Great Plains started putting depth wheels on individual row units, spreading the word about no-till around the world, and much more. Tell me a little about your background. You were Kansas farm boy? Nope. <laughs> Kansas factory boy, actually. Okay. I, I grew up in my dad's business. Basically, I'm just three and a half miles from her, my great-grandparents homesteaded. Wow. He farmed, and my dad, when the war started, he ended up being a tool and die maker down in Cessna in Wichita, and then came back the year I was born in 46, and uh, started his own tool and die shop. That grew into a farm equipment, ball bearing, foundry company. I grew mm-hmm. up in that company. He had 425 employees when we sold out in 75. Wow. And then I started all over by myself in 76. What kind of farm equipment was he building? He made four and five inch grain augers for uh, tractor supply and people like that, some other chain stores, and some bigger augers. They made nine bale loaders on a contract basis. They were one of these pick bale pickups for small sure. bales. I guess he had one of the first grain cart companies around. Uh-huh. Uh, they were called A&L grain carts. They're orange ones. And he built a lot of those for people like Conley and Lindsay and these different distributors. I suppose in those days they had a capacity of 100 bushel or so, and now we got 1,000 bushel grain cards. <laughs> we had a 425 bushel and a 625 Pretty big or something in those like days. So after they sold out, what made you decide to start Great Plains? Well, I guess I started packing bolts for grain orders like when I was 11 or something in the plant. And then I did product design type stuff on ball bearings and did plant layout work in high school and college. And when I graduated from college, he had a small foundry and manager quit. And it was a really small one in Salina. So the day I graduated, that guy quit. So I became a foundryman in five years uh, and building an electric foundry and doing that. And then uh, it wasn't too long until we sold out. But I was involved in mostly in the bearing business, and that was our main business. Well, no wonder you can talk foundry with Mike Lester and Dave Kanicki, who had a foundry <laughs> background. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've been involved in ownership of three different founders over the years. 
Mm-hmm. Between my dad and I. Great Plains, what was your first product? 30-foot grain drill. This was not no-till. It was regular grain drill yeah, at that just time. Yeah, regular right? folding drill. Mm-hmm. Crestbuster had a folding drill, but it was room for improvement there. And we started out doing that. I made design ball bearings for different drill companies. Kirschman at Melrose sure. in North Dakota. I did some work on stuff for them in high school. And we sold ball bearings mostly to farm equipment companies. We made a lot of special bearing housings, castings and stampings and things. Once you got locked in to a special like that, it wasn't quite so competitive as just the basic bearings. Our biggest customer was Heston, and we probably had 20 different part numbers with them. And we did work for John Deere, but mostly short-line companies. So I got to know pretty much all the short-line companies. And back in the 70s when we started, there was a lot of different tillage companies here in Kansas, at least, I don't know, six or eight anyway, seemed like a really competitive business. And I'd been involved with bearings on grain drills. My father-in-law was a farmer close by here. He had a John Deere Enfield drill. And I said, boy, I see some things on there I could make better. Before I did anything, I talked to 100 farmers in Kansas. And really, nobody wanted a better Enfield drill. <laughs> that was kind of a non-starter. But everybody wanted a better folding drill. So that's what we ended up with. First year, we built one. And the second year, 20. Third year, 100, and fourth year, uh, we built 225. So it started out really, really fast. How'd you go about getting dealers right away? I went around and knocked on doors. <laughs> I did a direct mailer to uh, bought a list from Farm Journal of 1,200 farmers in Kansas. Then I took some snapshots of our prototype, about a dozen of them, and a little mailer and mailed it out to those 1,200 people. And then I did a survey on what row spacing and how wide and what kind of grain and stuff like that. And then I said, if you'd like to help me test this prototype, fill out this form and send it back in. I had a 30% response rate out of 1,200 mailing of people that sent back my form. That's a great response. And I still have guys, well, I haven't now been at a farm show for a while. There'd be people that come up 30 years later and say, I got one of those mailers. (laughs) You know, you mentioned Melro earlier, and in 1973, I went to England, ICI, who owned the rights to Paraquat at that time, and they had an ag engineering area. I had known the ag engineering guy, and he took me out there, and we're walking around all these machines, and there's a Melro grain drill sitting there. And I said to him, what's this? Oh, he said, that, there no that, one? Yeah, it was. And he said, that drill has got so much potential. He says, it's got some great ideas, and we're going to try and work with them. But I came back and t- talked to the Melro people here. They didn't know what I was talking about. I think the ICI CI guys had modified it for no-till. I don't think Melrose had done it at that point. The English guy said to Melrose, man, you got something to really catch on, but they never seemed to really get it going in no-till here. Didn't they hook up with Bettinson way back there? Yes. Bettinson had a no-till. We went out on some farms in England, and people were running Bettinson drills. They made a deal with GT up at Clay Center, and GT made maybe 50 of them or so painted red, and it really never got on here. This is maybe not at all true, but I heard once that there's a lady engineer that built the first John Deere single-disc air drill. And the way I heard the story was one of the managers brought in a single-disc opener off of a Moore drill and said, I want a single-disc no-till opener like this, but a better one. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, though. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if it's true, right? <laughs> so you uh, got off to a good start with uh, folding drills. And what got your interest in the no-till market? 
Well, there's a lot of people having trouble with trash flow on hose drills. I guess it had a little bit to do with it, but I think the first real time we did anything was we built a hitch for a three-point drill, and I don't know, around 81 or 82, somewhere there, and went down to the no-till field day at Milan, Tennessee, sure. and there was about eight or ten different people that had different things there along the way, no-till, and I guess that's where we started. I remember going to family reunions and stuff out here in Kansas with wheat farmers, you know, mostly talking about no-till in the 80s. And they said, you'll never no-till wheat out here in Kansas. That's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you went to Milan, there was probably you and Ty and Crossbuster probably had drills at that time, right? Yeah, Ty for sure. Yeah, Crossbuster was there too. I remember it was a miserable hot, steamy day. Out in the field, it was just terrible. And there were all these little uh, sweat flies that were staying us. It was sure. a miserable day. We were all staying at the same hotel, and we all went back, all the competitors, and we all jumped in the swimming pool. <laughs> felt so good. Well, about this time, I think I've heard you talk about uh, BASF coming out with the idea for narrow row beans. I mean, we had been planting beans in 30-inch rows, and all of a sudden they saw a chance to drill beans. And I think you got involved with that, didn't you? Yeah, we really did. Ty probably did it a little bit ahead of us, mm -hmm. but we were right in the beginning of it. When it was just getting going fairly good, they had a deal down at Marco Island down in uh, Florida at a nice hotel there with all their salespeople. They had a spray coop and uh, several machines there. That's the one I remember. But they had a forecast of what was going to happen with no-till beans using Bassagran, you know. They had these graphs with this incredible numbers on it. Eric Lund and I together. Sure, I remember him. For 18 or 20 years, and then he started his own company. But, oh, that's just sales talk. They'll never hit those kind of numbers. <laughs> Well, it was pretty darn accurate, you know, and it really, I think, took off as John Deere got into it, 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 even though they took a pretty big market share, everybody did better because of it. Kind of our claim to fame was our uh, pivoting no-till hitch, where we, the coulter would track the opener really well. I don't know, some years ago, I know they built their 10,000th on Great Plains, did a lot of those. And one of the problems we had was that some of the competitors came out with a rigid toolbar on a three-point drill, and that was cheaper to make. We were kind of on the high price side. And we decided, well, we can make a cheaper drill like that. It doesn't work as good, but we can make them. So we brought that out, and our dealers, they'd have one of those and one of the pivoting ones, but we hardly ever sold any of the there's <laughs> because people really wanted the one of the opener to track the coulter. How'd you come up with that idea? Well, the first one didn't have a pivot, and we couldn't track. And I think the idea maybe came from an articulated tractor, basically, where the front wheels track the back one. Are you familiar with the tribine combine now? Have you seen those around? Yes, yes. yes. It's an articulated combine. It's kind mm -hmm. of interesting. I hear John Deere's come out. I haven't seen it, but a really expensive really big new combine. Yeah, I think if you bought all the features on it, you're talking a million dollars. Yeah, that's the number I heard, too. It seems like you've got to grow an awful lot of wheat here. Yeah. I'm sure it's a corn machine, basically, though. Mike Lessner and I were down at John Deere and visiting their archives last December. We went on a plant tour, and they were building the assembly line in the combine plant site alongside the other one at that time. They were pouring concrete, but they were getting geared up to uh, run it. But at a million dollars, you wonder how many people are going to be able to afford that machine. Yeah, I can't imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> that tribine has two engines on it, one for drive and one for thrashing. It's kind of interesting. 
Right. And then somebody recently pointed out on the deer, if you're buying that $1 million machine, how many grain carts you're going to have to have and how many semis <laughs> you're going to have to uh, keep it running all the time. Now, there's the opposite end of the spectrum where guys are talking about having half a dozen small tractors robotically, thinking that's kind of a pain, too, to move all that equipment back and forth between fields. But we're probably going to get to the point where some of those can run 24 hours a day without anybody watching them. So who knows? Times are going to change, no doubt about it. Tell me about some of the successes you had with no-till and the, the new drills you had in those days. It was amazing as it kind of took off with a number of dealers that sell over 20 a year. And then uh, people wanted bigger ones, so we uh, built the folding ones, too. I think I've told you the story before, and it's even in your book, I believe. We didn't get our, and they worked pretty good in no-till, but then if you went into conventional till, we had our wheels on the ends, and our wheels weren't in the right place. In a soft field, we'd dig too many holes when you turned at the end of the row, and we had to go back and retrofit a couple hundred of those things to get the wheels in the right place, and that was a challenge for us, I'll tell you. But it was probably the biggest customer relations success you ever had, right? <laughs> yeah, people appreciate it. You're being taken care of and not getting stuck. Worked out pretty good. Another story that goes back to the beginning, I think it was at Mantoon, Illinois. This was right at the beginning, right before no-till, really, but we were building a six-inch double-disc drill with a four-inch 4 by 12 press wheel on the back. And we had two sidearms coming down the size of that press wheel. You know, in a lot of conditions, it worked pretty good, but boy, it was muddy over there. And at an early sales meeting, we had to, had to deal with that problem. We had to came up with a single arm press mm-hmm. wheel. I didn't have concave wheels. We had flat wheels. And that worked out really good. We built lots of product like that. Ended up more with a 3 by 16 than a 4 by 12 Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking at some of the material we had in the book, and you talked about early on how residue was a problem, and your first idea was to pull a colder ahead of a conventional double-disc opener to cut through the soil and cut the trash. So tell me how that got changed. (laughs) Actually, the very first prototype I built was actually had a single kind of a tray-type arm with a coulter, and then actually just a shank behind the coulter with something like an eagle beak point on it or something like that. Or maybe an acre plant cast point. That didn't work at all. It was just a break. And that's still a problem with cultures. If you don't have something pretty hard to cut against, you can just hairpin instead of cut. How did you overcome the problems of getting good depth control in the row units? Well, we put the press wheel out on the individual row units, and that worked good. A lot of people early on, I think it was on no-till too, but they wanted side depth wheels like a planter on the row units. We messed with that quite a bit, but never could get that to really be. You can put a metal band on there for sewing alfalfa or something, but it gets to be almost like a planter by the time you get something good enough to really work with side depth wheels. Well, today we talk about automatic down pressure, but in those early days, you had the openers that you couldn't get in the ground, so you put some more weight on the hitches of the drills or on the drills themselves, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, we weighted those hitches up a lot. One of the things we fought a lot, I remember down south, a lot of places, where if you had a the test of a no-till drill was how well it penetrated, and people would go out maybe in a really hard field or almost like a gravel road and sure. see if your drill would really penetrate, but that was the big deal, but it didn't take too long to figure out that if it was so hard you couldn't penetrate, you shouldn't be out there anyway. Because <laughs> you really, your soil condition was so poor you weren't going to get a stand, really. 
We'll come right back to Frank and Roy Albequist, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sestera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SesteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Roy Applequist, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Back in 1997, at the National No-Tillage Conference, we heard from a speaker from South America who claimed he no-tilled the worst ground found any place on the planet. Once Carlos Crovetto started no-tilling in 1978, the quality of his farming life greatly improved. Since then, the Concepcion chili grower has used less fertilizer while increasing soil quality and yields. He maintains no-till must be permanent, which means always leaving 100% of the residue on the soil surface. Yields with continuous no-till corn back in 1997 were as high as 316 bushels per acre, along with 170 bushel no-till wheat yields. And I know that Carlos has dramatically increased these yields in the two decades since that time. Let's get back to the program now as Roy Applequist talks about how the company got involved with building equipment for twin row corn. Early on, what kind of colders were you using? Wavy ones, skinny ones, or whatever? We never made very many of the really wide ones. We did quite a few three-quarter inch wavy, but mostly we sold the narrow fluted ones. And then quite a while back, we came up with the spiral type coulter. We sold thousands of them. <laughs> then later on, Great Plains got involved with twin row corn. Why don't you tell me the history of that? Tom Evans, our sales manager, was kind of the guy behind that more than anybody in the company. He'd seen some of it done, I think, down between uh, north of Wichita. There are some people that somehow had planted some, and it seemed to work pretty good. And we started messing with it. We sold a lot of twin row equipment. Looking back, we built our frames to handle twin row. Mm -hmm. So we overbuilt the frame. And then when we went to single row, we had too heavy a frame, really. Some of the new machines that Great Plains is coming out with are more designed for 30-inch machines, really. But they go up to 38 and down to 20s, I think. But I really believed in the Glenrail corn. I don't know. It's just an awful lot of moving parts there, and everything's so close together. We've got some no-tillers running your machines on twin rows, and there's not a lot of options and machines to buy. There's yourself and Monison from Europe. I don't know who else has got twin rows. Actually, where it's really worked out well is twin 38s down in the Delta. There's a lot of that going on down there, I think. Well, out in the Palouse, I mean, we had the Xactrix people with their big drills. They were on a concept called paired rows, which is kind of similar to what we are doing with twin row corn and twin row soybeans. So there's a few other people tinkering around with it. There was kind of the air drills that banded, too, uh, where they put down a three-inch strip of wheat or beans, I guess, but that wasn't a good idea either, I don't think. Have you seen the new drill that's being built up in Canada? 
It's an air drill. Last I heard, it was a $700,000 30-foot drill that uh, you can put down multiple fertilizers and all kinds of seed. And they've spent at least $10 million, I think, in development on it. A lot yeah. of money. And it's really I haven't, fancy. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I have heard about it. It's probably the same guy that buys the million-dollar combine that maybe <laughs> has some oil wealth. <laughs> right, right. Looking for a tax write-off. <laughs> Well, later on, Great Plains got involved with vertical tillage. So tell me about the history of vertical tillage. We have one plant about all we built was that vertical tillage equipment. I think our company belief pretty much was that no-tilling in the corn belt, that if you took that one pass, shallow pass, and vertically tilled, it just worked better than just going into a straight no-till field. And you got better trash management. Now, not everybody wants that. Out in wheat country here, we a lot of times like to leave the straw standing so we can catch some snow in the winter, and it's a different situation. But I remember one story, particularly on the, well, this is more ripping, but place down in Oklahoma where we went in and ripped 40 and put in Milo and didn't rip the other. We got like twice the yield on that field that we ripped. There's fields here within five miles of my office that I see water standing in the fields with a one or two inch rain. They just desperately need to rip. They've just been disking for years and planning that they just can't take any water. Right. So I'm a big believer in getting rid of that pan. Vertical tillage won't do that, will it? I mean, you got to subsoil it to get rid of the... Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. I'm no agronomist, though. I'm more of an iron bender. <laughs> you <get> right <laughs> down to it. Well, you look back 10, 15 years in no-till, and Phoenix Rotary Heralds were popular for a while, and they would kind of fluff up that residue, and they've kind of gone by the wayside. And now you got some no-tillers who like to make a pass with the vertical tillage machine, and then you got other no-tillers who say, my God, we're not doing tillage. Why would you want to run that? And you can be successful either way, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I was at a seminar one time. I had breakout groups, and there was 15 guys in there that were all no-tilling. And after a couple hours of talking, you know, a lot of it got down to soil types. What worked for one guy, I couldn't do that in my field, but I got to do it this way. That seems to be a pretty big deal. And sometimes you think two guys farming across the road from one another with two different no-till systems, and they're both very successful. And if they switch systems, they just might both flop. Yeah. i tell you, one of the products we're coming out with is our new company that we haven't introduced to the market or anything, but uh, it's going to be uh, on the John Deere 1890 air drill out here in terraces, a rigid frame pretty far between openers. The outside ends of those frames don't do well at all in uh, terraces and stuff, and we're coming out with a fixed cut to really improve the performance of those mm-hmm. on the market yet or anything. But. Right. So you did pretty well exporting Great Plains equipment for no-till. You got into Europe and Eastern Europe quite a bit, didn't you? Like yeah. Ukraine or Russia? Both. We actually sold product over the years in 50 different countries. There's different successes, different places, but Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Russia, Ukraine. They're doing more all the time in Kazakhstan, I believe. We never really did an awful lot in Western Europe. We tried hard, but we never got really numbers. Back 12 years ago or something, we bought a plant in England, Simba, it was called. They were building heavy tillage stuff. That's kind of an interesting story. That started, actually, a guy developed a machine to deal with stuff in Kenya and Africa. He was an Englishman, and then he moved back to England and started this company. 
But anyway, from that African roots, that's how he ended up naming the company Simba, because he kind of had his roots in Africa. We had about 100 employees there. I think the second year that we had the National No Tillage Conference, which I think would have been 1994, we had a speaker from southern Illinois who had gone to Belarus, and they were going to get no-till going in there, and that was still the East German commodity farms. Or he thought he did a really great job on selling no-till to one of these farm managers that had just had a huge operation, but he couldn't get him to sign off on it and do it. And finally, the guy said to him, I believe in what you're telling me. I believe in the no-till equipment you got. I believe it works. But if I go to no-till, what am I going to do with these 200 people I got employed around this farm? <laughs> I've actually heard that story, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Besides what you got going with this new farm equipment company, you got some other family businesses that are doing pretty well these days, aren't they? Well, we have those two I mentioned, and then uh, we have a nice little restaurant here in this area that's uh, kind of upscale and kind of have fun with that. I have two son-in-laws. One of them started a new company, Farmada. He's just getting going. I think his first machine he shipped was a 65-foot anhydrous bar. And my other son-in-law has a precision machine shop that's got early upscale machining centers. They can make a lot of things. They do injection molds and stuff. That's that's like a 10-man shop. He purchased that, let's see, just about a year ago now, and we've added some equipment. And I think that'll be a growing business. Great Plains has been expanding. They took over a 350,000-foot building over at uh, Abilene, close to the Abilene Land Pride plant that's just getting going. And about uh, the last month, they announced that they're buying a Phillips lighting building, the largest square footage plant in Salina, 750,000 feet. They won't take over that for a year and a half or so till it changes, but they'll be building skid steers there. The Kubota skid steer line will be built yeah. there. Hmm. So what led you to get in the restaurant business? <laughs> <laughs> the money. There's just so much money in restaurants. But if you can run a restaurant and not go out of business, you know what you're doing. That's <laughs> <laughs> a tough business. But we have a good crew, and we have a really, really nice venue. And It's actually uh, Renaissance Cafe is the name of it. Yeah. And it's actually, we still own the R&D Center for uh, the Great Plains Division. It's just a block from my office here in sure. Syria. And this little restaurant was started out as a cafeteria with the uh, there's about 60 or 70 people there in the, their R&D operations here. But now we're just open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. And if you're out here, you ought to come eat with us. It's a really nice place. Hey, this has been great. Did a really great job, and I got some real good insights on here. I'm reminded of one thing here, and I'm looking at page in my no-till history book, and there's a picture of you with this pickup truck pulling the 30-foot folding grain drill, about to get its first field test during the fall of 1976. But the thing that makes me smile is on the front of that pickup, you got a sign that says, caution, wide load. And compared to the wide loads we see today, that's not much of a wide load. <laughs> yeah, I got a couple of good stories about that, too. Well, let's hear them. I had a half-ton Ford pickup, a red one, and I, I took the press wheels off the sides of that machine and threw them in the, this was the first machine, threw them in the back of the pickup. I had one employee, and he was following me in a Jeep. In fact, his grandson is an engineer working with me now at the Planet Center. But anyway, I got going at a pretty good clip down the highway, and that thing started to fishtail on me. And <laughs> I came so close to going in the ditch. 
it was just a miracle I didn't crash because I didn't have enough weight in the truck. I went up and then I turned west to go to where this field was we were going to plant. There was two big uh, four-wheel drives running on both sides of the road there, and they had 60-foot field cultivators on them, something like that, I sure. think. About 15 years later, I was talking to this guy, and his, his name is Bacchus, and he was one of the leaders in the Farm Bureau here in Kansas, and he said, that was when the two-way radios were a big deal. And uh, he said, I called my son on my cell phone, I said, what in the hell is that going down the road? <laughs> I had never seen one before. I was all worried that John Deere was going to see it and copy me, but that was how naive I was, so they could have cared less. All right. Well, they've been known to do that. Yeah, but it was out in the middle of nowhere. That wasn't a, the greatest machine in the world in the first place. That grandson, the guy that was with me that day, works for me, and he was an industrial engineer at Great Plains before he came here. He'd seen that old first drill was in the weeds here, and it was all rusty, and he had a passion for it. And uh, for our 40th anniversary, he and another guy got that out and sandblasted it and rebuilt it, and we had it in the center of the auditorium where we uh, had our Christmas party. Yeah. Took pictures of it and everything. My original employee, he was there in a wheelchair, and it wasn't too much later that Bob Ladd is his name. He passed away, but yeah. it was a real point. Of, he and I had made that drill, and from scratch, and it was kind of a special time for us. Well, let's wrap this up. You've done great today. You've been a real pioneer in farm equipment market, grain drills, vertical tillage, and you've played an important role in no-till and been a success story. And gosh, you're just kind of like me. You can't let go. You're still doing lots of different things. And What I like to tell people, my job's pretty good because I like to spend half my time writing what I want to write and the other half of my time complaining about how our son Michael's running the company. <laughs> and if he was here, he would say, well, Dad, you're halfway. But uh, <laughs> So if yeah. I get a compliment, I take it. And if there's a problem, I say, you have to go see Mike. So. I've known Mike a long time now. He's a great guy. I appreciate yeah, him a lot. Right. Well, it's funny once because he worked one summer at the Olympic Committee in Colorado Springs. And he and I drove out. He had a car and then I flew home. But along the way, we made a stop at Orthman. And uh, he didn't even want to get out of the car. And now he's in the farm equipment business, including having Orthman as a customer. But we laughed because he thought it was a waste of time to drive 20 minutes off the highway to go see Orthman. Yeah, my wife knew. Never enjoyed when we were going to Colorado to have to drive through every implement between slides. Yeah, right, right, right. Implement the on the way out there. Right. It's well, like, you have to know what's going on, you know. I guess like my wife, when I asked her if she wanted to make a trip with me, the first question was, is this vacation or business? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Hey, I'll let you go. Thanks very much. I appreciate you doing this. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Okay. I appreciate you calling. Okay. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. People like to ask me about some of the zany things that seem to go on at the National No-Tillage Conference. And I'm going to go back right now to the very first no-till conference that was held in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1993. There was a grower from Michigan's Thumb area who attended. He was keen to learn all he could about no-till, but he'd never no-tilled a single acre. A few weeks after the conference, he called and told me he was so convinced that no-till would work that he was selling always tillage equipment and several high horsepower tractors 
at a late February auction. He was going 100% no-till on 1,200 acres of corn and soybeans that spring based on what he had learned at that year's National No-Tillage Conference. For me, this is a scary situation as we've always told growers to transition to no-till on a small scale to make sure they can make it work. A couple years later, the Michigan grower told me he'd been successful in plunging whole hog into no-till based on what he'd learned at that winter's very first National No-Tillage Conference. Thankfully, he'd made no-till work that first year and for every year since. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Roy Applequist for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for helping to make the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Notill Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. Thank you.